This year, I am focused on saving and investing, but I still want to do things like travel. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side-by-side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending, which means you could end up with a free flight or maybe a better hotel room. So what could future you do with smarter financial decisions? Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Do you want to set your child up for success? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. Well, I know with Eleanor, when she was struggling so much with math, if she had been able to do online learning at home, she would have been much better able to keep up with the class, and that would have just made the whole situation much easier for her. Don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And half your listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com happier. Visit IXL.com happier to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hello and welcome to Happier, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to build happier habits into your daily life. This week, we'll talk about why it's a good idea to create a catch-all for insight and creativity, and we'll talk to my friend Susan Burton about her brilliant memoir, Empty. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. I am in my home office in New York City, and with me is my sister, the Sage. That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in L.A. And Gretch, I don't know if I'm wise, but I definitely like to talk a lot, so (laughs) hopefully something good comes out. Well, before we launch in, we have a couple updates. The first one comes from Lori. She says, I was looking for an inexpensive way to say thinking of you to two ladies living in a retirement facility, which has been locked down for two months with no visitors. And I remembered this idea from your podcast. I found two mugs at a dollar store and the plants and decorations at the grocery store and put the mini planters on the patio of their apartment. Then I called to say, look for a surprise on your patio. Costs under $5. Each delighted response from the ladies, priceless. Thank you. And she included a picture. So one mug said, bloom where you are planted. And the other said, life is better with a furry companion. And she also put in a pinwheel in each one. So it was very kind of festive looking. And I thought that was such a great idea of something like a little thing to do that would really lift someone's spirits. It sounded really fun. And then, Gretch, we also wanted to share this from Caitlin. She said, in episode 277, a listener talked about doing an Empower Hour with with friends to support causes they care about. I borrowed that idea with my own group of friends. Now a group of about 11 of us set aside an hour every Wednesday night to discuss anti-racism efforts we are incorporating into our own lives. People bring articles and personal situations to the group for feedback. We've also started a monthly group giving effort. A few of us work at large companies that offer limitless donation matching to nonprofits. This month, we raised $605, which, when matched, totals $1,210. 
We raised money for the Loveland Foundation, an organization dedicated to providing therapy to black women and girls. We are going to continue this every month, each of us bringing an organization that we care about to the group and then all voting and donating together. Such a fun way to keep up the momentum. Well, this is a great idea. And it's interesting. This idea of the Empower Hour has really caught on with people. It's so yes. interesting to see how different people have taken it in different directions. And this is amazing how to think about with this matching possibility. Yes. It's really yes. great. So keep those Empower Hour ideas coming. Yes. And speaking of ideas, we are going to do a very special episode on hacks. It's going to be an all-hack episode. So if you have hacks that you have not yet sent... In COVID-19 related, not COVID-19 related, work hacks, family hacks, relationship hacks, clutter hacks, mm -hmm. any kind of hack, empower mm -hmm. our hacks, any kind of hack, we're going to do a roundup. So send them in yes. uh, and that will be for our next very special episode. Can't wait for that. I love myself some hacks. I love some <laughs> hacks. <laughs> and this week, our Try This at Home tip is to create a catch-all. And this is the idea that you want to create a box or a document or a folder or something that can be a catch-all for your ideas, your inspiration, your insights. Because you want to make it very easy to use this, it has to be something very functional, very easy to use, but something where you can store ideas and inspiration or memories, whatever it is that you want to hang on to for later. Yes, the key is once you have this is to go through it. Now, Gretchen, you do this. I mean, you're always catching your ideas? Well, it's interesting. I do it in documents and I have these big, gigantic catch-all documents. But as you say, one of the things is you have to keep it, but then you also have to go through it. And that's, I think that that's it's sort of like a double whammy there because recently I've been going through some of my old documents and it really did stimulate my mind and my creativity, but, it, but these were huge documents. Right. And so it took some time. Now, how about you, Elizabeth? What, how do, what do you use as a catch-all? Well, I mean, I really don't have a system. This is making me realize I should have like a box. What I do is just write things down on post-it notes and then just mm. like put them somewhere on my desk or my computer. <laughs> like I think I mentioned recently on Happier in Hollywood, I just wrote down the phrase unexpected interlude and I came upon it and I said, okay, that's an idea I had about something. What was it? Luckily yeah. I remembered, but I need to make a box that is just for random ideas. Now with television writing, Sarah and I kind of keep a list of our catch-all ideas on our whiteboard. Oh. If we have an extra whiteboard. Yeah. But I really would like to have a box. Yeah. No, it's good to have some kind of system. I think it's nice if it's a physical system. I wish my documents were more tangible. They're kind of virtual. But here says something funny a friend of mine said about her journals on this idea of like catching your thoughts and then reflecting on them. My friend was saying she was rereading her old journals and she realized that she thought she was having all these epiphanies, but in fact, she was having the same few epiphanies over and over and just not remembering them. <sighs> and so I thought that was funny. And when I was looking back on my own documents, I realized like, like I, right now I'm real, I feel like, oh, I have this new obsession about the body and the senses. Actually, this goes back years and years and years. Mm. It feels fresh, but actually I've been thinking about it for a long time without kind of realizing it. Oh, which is sort of funny. Of course, Gretchen, I know you have an impulse to archive, like, everything. So for you, it could get to be an overwhelming problem. Yes. Yes. And I think for some people, it can become overwhelming and because um, you sort of want to keep everything. And I don't use Evernote for that reason. And people are always telling me about Evernote and I haven't yet, I don't even really know what it does because I'm like, I think I would just start, trans. it would be like this Borgesian nightmare where everything <laughs> would end up in my documents. 
So I make myself retype everything. And usually mm. I don't even keep like magazine clippings. If I want to hang on to something, I have to retype it wow. because that is a discipline. Mm. And it helps me remember it too, which is good. Because otherwise, I'm afraid I would just I would just be swamped by it. Yeah, and some people we should mention I think use Pinterest for this. They they pin sort of aspirational things they like. Thing you know, if they're going to yeah. redo their house or something, or have yeah. a party or places so. to visit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or like yeah, any yeah. inspiration boards. Yeah. yeah, no. So it doesn't have to be an actual thing. It can all be virtual, but yeah, uh, but an actual or it can box just be a cardboard nice. box. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's something satisfying about a cardboard box. Yes. Um, so let us know if you do try this at home and how creating a catch-all works for you. Or do you already have a catch-all? It would be really fun to hear how people use catch-alls, how they maintain them, how they review them. Let us know on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRubin.com. Or as always, go to the show notes. This is happiercast.com slash 285. This is episode 285 for everything related to this episode. Coming up, a happiness hack for people who love to learn something new every day. But first, this break. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Elizabeth, I got the Flow Knit Wide Leg Pant. It's very light. It's perfect for the summer. It packs very easily. I recently went on a trip with my family, and I took it with me, and they were just the thing to wear on a really hot day where I wanted to be covered up, but I wanted something that looked great and also was very comfortable. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash Gretchen for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Gretchen to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Gretchen. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. And, you know, Elizabeth, I now work with a team and hiring the right people is so important. It's maybe the most important thing. And LinkedIn makes the process of identifying and hiring people easy and intuitive. I know that when I've been hiring for my team, it's hard to find quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn isn't just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Gretchen. That's linkedin.com slash Gretchen to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now it's time for a happiness hack. And this is a hack for people who love to read and learn. And this hack comes from Kate. She says... 
DelanceyPlace.com is a free daily email that sends readers a brief excerpt from a nonfiction book. The excerpts always vary a lot from day to day and cover history, science, entertainment, psychology, biography, etc. It's a great way to get book suggestions, and it's a quick way to learn something new every day. For example, I just read an excerpt about how Richard Nixon was really into the movie Patton. So random and interesting. This is why I thought of you guys, because Gretchen, years ago, you spoke to my class at NYU and you said you wanted to write a Nixon biography. I thought your listeners might like the daily emails as well. What a great idea. I love getting things by newsletter. And that sounds like a really great resource. Yes. Thank you, Kate. And now this week's spotlight on a Black author. uh, And this week's spotlight is on Virginia Hamilton. Now, I have talked many times about my love of children's literature and young adult literature. And of the great kid lit from previous decades, many people today aren't as aware of the work of Virginia Hamilton as they should be. Everyone should know Virginia Hamilton. She won the Newbery Medal, the National Book Award, the Boston Globe Horn Book Award, the Hans Christian Andersen Award, the Coretta Scott King Award, and she was the first children's book author to receive a MacArthur Genius Award. Uh, And she wrote many books. Now, my favorite of her books is M.C. Higgins the Great. Uh, In 1974, it won the Newbery and the National Book Award, and it is a strange, haunting book. I would say it's the kind of book where it it seems like things are operating on the realistic plane and on the symbolic plane. That is my favorite kind of book. It's not everybody's favorite kind of book, and so I think a book that many people might like as much or better, another one of her beloved books is called The House of Dies Drear, and that is, it's kind of a ghost story. It's suspenseful. Uh, The main character, Thomas, and his family move into a house that was part of the Underground Railroad, and I just recently tried to get my hands on a book of hers called Justice and Her Brothers, which is the first in a trilogy, and I'm very excited to read that, Um, but she's written many, many books. So check out Virginia Hamilton. Um, So much great stuff to read from her. Okay, Gretch, it is time for an interview. We are talking to writer and editor Susan Burton. Susan Burton is an editor at the renowned radio show This American Life and a writer whose work has appeared in many publications such as The New Yorker, New York Magazine, Slate, and The New York Times Magazine. Now, I also just found out that the movie Unaccompanied Minors was based on one of her radio essays, which I had never known before. And I have known Susan for years. We are both members of the same children's literature book group, where Susan is well known for her strong preference for realistic fiction. She is a person who prefers her novels to be (laughs) dragon-free, unlike some members of our group. And she is a brilliant, brilliant writer. She has just written a haunting thought-provoking, page-turning memoir called Empty. In it, she grapples with the tough subject of eating disorders. So please do skip ahead to our next segment if this is a subject that is distressing to you. The memoir Empty is also about so many other things, dealing with parents' divorce, the sense of invention and reinvention in childhood and adolescence, the feeling of being in college, being a young adult. It is just so evocative. Susan, welcome. Hi, Susan. Hi. Before we start, Susan, I, I loved your book. Yes. Oh, thank you. So thank good. you. Oh, just fantastic. Yes. Just amazing. So, Susan, we've been in this children's literature reading group together for years. And so whenever we check in, you would talk about the memoir that you're writing, which for a long time and in many versions was called The Invention of the Teenage Girl, which was going to be a memoir fused with a cultural history of the teenage girl. 
And then I saw your galley and I saw that you had made a huge change in focus. How did that happen? I mean, it was a long time coming. As soon as I wrote the first draft, like the first draft, I spent kind of half of it marching through the cultural history. And then halfway through, like my eating disorders took over the story. And I spent years paralyzed, like not knowing exactly which book to write because the eating disorders were secret. I wasn't sure I was ready to tell that story. And once I did feel ready, then there was like a second problem, which was I was embarrassed that I wanted to tell that story. Like that was almost the bigger problem. Like admitting that that was the story I wanted to tell, that was really the hard thing for me to get over. And it wasn't until... um, So it took me so long to write this book that I went through a few editors. And my third editor, who's really wonderful, Hillary Redman, she just saw what I needed to write and encouraged me to do it. And, like, I really needed that permission. Well, and it is a huge secret, obviously, coming out about your eating disorders. We'd love it if you'd read the passage in the epilogue sort of the first time when you broached the idea of letting the secret out. For sure, yes. The epilogue is called Telling. In my early 30s, an acquaintance came up to me at a party and said she was gathering essays for an anorexia anthology. And I'm trying to find people just through word of mouth or mentions in their work. And I hope you won't take this the wrong way, but if you'd be interested in writing something, sure, I said, sure, I'd love to. I said yes, because that's who I tried to be. Smiling, agreeable, no problem, totally. But almost immediately, I knew I would not do it. I didn't think I could write something smart enough or honest enough. My anorexia was no secret. People had seen it. But I couldn't tell that story without telling about the binging. And long ago, I had locked that in as something I would never say. I'd sealed around that experience, and holding it in had become a condition of selfhood. I didn't reevaluate. And then, unexpectedly, I did. The first time I told the secret, I was 36. It was to a woman I'd literally just met. She was a book editor. She'd heard a radio story I'd done, and we were talking about ideas for books I could write. We were in upholstered chairs in a coffee shop on a spring evening in the neighborhood where we both lived. I liked her. She was smart and warm and interested in me. I had a little list of ideas. Working through them, I said something vague about an eating disorder in my teens. She went straight for it. Were you not eating or were you eating and throwing up? And then for some reason I explained. Afterward, I walked home along an avenue lined with pre-war buildings and flowering trees. It was my own safe street, a pretty pink night. But I felt dislocation and fear. Who was I if I was no longer holding this in? What mattered if not the secret I'd sworn to protect? Also, now I could clearly never work on a book with this woman. Even on the street, I would have to pretend I didn't see her. There was no way I could ever be normal around her again. In the weeks that followed, I held the secret tighter than ever. But now I had tested saying... And the result of the test was that I began to consider not only what the consequences of the eating had been, but the price of the secret itself. Your book has so many themes woven together. And one of the themes is the keeping of the secret and the telling of the secret. And what does it mean to hold on to a secret? What does it mean to release the secret? How how have you felt since you put this out into the world? 
and then maybe in the past you never even really thought what that would be. It was just like a door that was shut that you never even thought about opening. But has it has it been a relief? Has it been scary? What's that been like? I mean, it's such it's like the central question. I mean, I spent years like in the throes of binge eating disorder. And I often imagined being able to stop, being able to quit, but like just as much fix my eating. That was your resolution that you made every right? year. That was my that was like my mantra. Yeah. But just as often I imagined telling about it. I mm. imagined confessing to somebody and I imagined like the closeness that might bring. But I didn't ever really imagine what came after the telling. And mm. it's it it's like I said, it is the central question, but it's a hard one for me to answer. Because if you think about a secret, there's like having a secret, telling a secret, and then living without the secret. Mm-hmm. And so I've had the secret. I've told the secret. But I have much less experience living without the secret. So it's like in that passage, mm-hmm. there's like that line about the price of the secret itself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like even though people... You know, people who know me and maybe have read an early copy of the book or have, like, Googled what the book is about, like, know the basic content of The Secret, but I don't have a lot of experience talking about it. And I don't have a lot of experience knowing what it's like to lose a secret, right? Because it, mm-hmm. it, it's it's powerful and transformative to tell a secret, but it's also a loss um, because it's something that, for me, you know, sort of organized my existence but I will say, I mean, I do have some like limited data on what it feels like to live without uh-huh. the secret. So like my husband, um, he, so he's, there's, there's a person who's, who I didn't tell about this until I'd finished the manuscript. Um, so it's been a year and a half that he's known wow. the secret and we've been together for more than 25 years. So it's, uh, it was a long held secret and a long time coming. And it, once you say what you thought could never be said, there's just so much more you can say. There's like a real new openness uh, and vulnerability uh, and a newness in our interaction. So if that is any indication of what it is like to live without the secret writ large, then um, yeah, then I think it will feel really good. Well, it's interesting how, you know, there was the eating disorder when it was, you know, at its height and what it took from you, but then also how sort of holding it inside this whole time has kept you from certain intimacy. So all the better to tell it. For sure, yes. It it definitely both kind of holding the secret and like the eating rituals themselves, like were both really isolation. It was like two kinds of isolation that mm-hmm. compounded. Well, the title of the book is so brilliant, Empty, and you have a beautiful passage, again, in the epilogue, where you talk about the significance of the word empty and all of its meanings for you. So, But I can't resist telling the story of how this came up in person with us. So as I said, we were part of this children's literature reading group, and I rarely host, but this was the night when I happened to be the host. So we were at my house, and we talked about whatever book it was. And somehow the conversation had just moved on, and we were just having general conversation. And you were sitting next to someone else who's in the group, kind of a larger-than-life, bigger-than-life personality. And somehow there was a moment where this conversation turned, and you said, I always want to feel empty. And our friend said, I always want to feel full. And there was this this moment where I felt like the ground shaking under my feet. I felt like sort of Jungian archetypes had kind of (laughs) 
you know, <laughs> from, had come down from the symbolic plane <laughs> and flashed and then retreated. And it was like it passed in a flash. But then when I got the galley of your book in the mail, I almost dropped it because I was like, empty. And I thought of that moment. I always want to feel empty. I always want to feel full. And so I asked you if you remembered that moment. You did. And I asked our friend if she remembered and she did. And for all of us, we had this kind of like sense of of incredible meaning having filled this moment that seemed to have passed so fleetingly. I was just so thunderstruck by the power. It just, it's so interesting. And then I just think it's the most perfect title for the book, the way you develop it. Oh, well, thank you, first of all. But also, I'm so glad that she remembers it, too. Um, (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I, you know, I think if I'd known at the time that that the two of you had felt the power of that moment, I would have felt really exposed. But now, you know, but, but now I'm so pleased that, uh, that you recognized its meaning because that moment was incredibly potent for me. I mean, like when I, I, I was I was trying to remember how it came up, and I think we were talking about cooking, and our friend said something about how one of the things she liked about cooking was it was a way to be with food without like eating food, without having food in her mouth. And that mm. is something that I relate to deeply. Like, that is a sentence that could have come out of my mouth. And so I think that I was less inhibited than I might have been, ah. than I might have been otherwise. Like, something about that provoked me, maybe feeling like there was somebody simpatico, yeah, in the room. And yes. so when, so I think I was freer than I would have been otherwise. And even saying that thing that I like to feel empty, which, which you know, doesn't necessarily mean anything, but to me would have felt really revealing. And then yes. the other thing that I think about now, I mean, to me, empty and full, right? Like as soon as she said it, like empty and full are two sides of the same coin for me. Like when I was binging, yes. I, I used fullness to not feel uncomfortable emotions and I used emptiness uh, to do a version of the same thing. So now when I look back, I just, I I didn't ever think that maybe she meant full in terms of like feeling nourished or satiated or um or warmth, or like she had, she'd eaten the right amount. Like fullness had so mm-hmm. much negativity for me. And it's ah. only in like reflecting on it now um, that I understand what associations I was bringing to fullness that are associations I've had to work to undo. Fascinating. Yeah. You guys will have to have that conversation. I know. I would love to talk to her about yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We all remember it. So, yeah. Susan, a huge theme in the book is reinvention and creation of a false self. Yes, and here's a passage that really stood out to me because it's because there is that reinvention of adolescence and young adulthood. Um, but here's a passage from high school where you say, by the end of second semester, I'd retreated, become studious, watchful. The year had been tumultuous and destabilizing, yet worthwhile. It freed me up, saved me from a fate as an obedient girl who started every paragraph with a topic sentence. But it also limited me in profound ways I wouldn't recognize until much later on. Now I knew how to create and maintain a false self, and this would become my default mode. You'd think I would have learned not to hide my essence, but instead, what I'd learned was how. And this idea of kind of creating these false selves and sustaining these false selves, I couldn't even imagine carrying it off. 
And so was part of this also kind of unpeeling what all those different evolutions had been? I think it was. I mean, I think that title, The Invention of the Teenage Girl, I persisted in wanting that to be the title of the book for so long, even after it was no longer so explicitly about invention, because to me that remained so important to me. Yes. I mean, but I'm glad that you recognized that, like, so there's there's invention and reinvention, and there's, there's the false self. And I think that's what I didn't realize until I was done mm. with the book, that I wasn't exactly, like, reinventing myself. Like, I was, I was playing a part in a way that was—that didn't feel good. And I think it's really— connected to the eating disorder stuff because they're both they're oh, both like yes. I'm not okay with who I am like I need to be different like I need to be somebody else like there's something wrong with me so I'm going to be other or there's some part of me that I have to hide or I don't want anyone to see yeah but you must have been really good at it because I remember like knowing you as I know you now you were like oh in college I sort of presented myself as this like fun loving <laughs> you know party girl, boulder girl. And I was like, what? Like, I don't think you're that good an actor. You know what I mean? Like, but clearly, I mean, it it seems like you really did have a mastery in a way that maybe did, 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 was so constraining and that you could effectively pretend to be somebody you weren't in a way that I think probably most people wouldn't be able to do. Yeah. I mean, it was easier for me to be someone else. I mean, even Mm. now as an adult, it's honestly like I feel like, I mean, you mentioned young and Jungian archetypes earlier. And I do feel like I'm in that like classically like Jungian, like midlife metamorphosis. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I'm figuring out who I am. I don't think that the self that I like inhabited during my 30s and 40s was entirely myself either. Like I was rigid and inflexible and Maybe I wasn't, like, consciously, as consciously playing a part, but there was some, like, essence of me that I sort of didn't have access to or was still hiding somehow. And maybe that's just, like, the secret. But, yeah, yeah. In the book, you talk about how, as an adult, you thought you were dealing with echoes of your eating disorder, But then in therapy and in writing the book, you realize, oh, these are actually manifestations of the eating disorder. It's not past. It's still sort of present. And that I would be connected to the false self. And maybe now you'll move through that or maybe you'll just be dealing with it on some level for your whole life. I hope it means I'll move through it. Um, but, But I do think, I do think there was a real kind of like, yeah, disconnection from what was really happening with my eating and and probably a disconnection from um, who I really was, too. There seems to have been this very deep uh, connection between the, the eating disorder and also your writing. You were doing so much writing. Was it were, were those two? Th- and clearly writing is so is so essential to you. Were those things bound up with each other? Oh, for sure. I mean, writing was the thing I would do almost inevitably after a binge. Like, it definitely served as a purge or a purification. It was a totally ritualistic act and one that I used, like, literally to process all that I'd taken in. And in a way, you know, writing the book, like, is still sort of a symptom of the eating disorder. It's still, I I was still Mm -hmm. sort of doing the same thing, like, locking myself in a room and kind of, like, remaining alone with, uh, with the illness and I, you know, and I think they're connected in another way, too. Like, it was 
that was like the biggest pain of my adolescence and young adulthood were these eating disorders. And I I gained a lot of practice <laughs> in writing about them. And I diverted so much feeling into like food and eating. I think when it came time to write this book, not only, you know, the reason the sort of like cultural history part fell away was partly because the eating disorder stuff was just so much more alive on the page. It was more urgent and unresolved because it's the thing that I'd been paying attention to and noticing and had practiced mm. working out in prose for so many years. But it's interesting, though, too, about uh, one of the themes I thought was that you were sort of like, I'm writing this book to try to understand where I am and who I am. And yet I know that I can't understand who I am and what I am. And that in the future, I'll look back and think tenderly about this middle-aged woman and everything she was going through and everything she was hiding from herself and that she couldn't see. And so, again, it's like this idea of, like, how do we even know ourselves? How do we get to, like, what is our essence? And is that even knowable? Telling is part of it. Writing is part of it. But then there's also kind of this idea that we can't really grapple with what is the truth about ourselves it's just, it was interesting to see you kind of working through that conundrum, trying to get to the bottom of yourself and yet knowing that you couldn't get to the bottom of yourself. Yeah. I mean, that is something that I'm struggling with right now. I think I'm struggling it with in living like we all are all the time. Right. But, but also in, in talking about the book, because because a question that people have is, is where are you now? And and it's hard yes. for me to say. I'm still working through all of this. And I, you know, for a long time, I had so much shame about the eating disorders and what had happened in the past. I don't really have shame about that anymore. Um, I wouldn't say that I necessarily have shame about not being able to say concretely where I am right now, but I definitely have anxiety about it. Because mm. people want you to sort of like sum it up in a neat package. Yeah, and it and it um, and not even so much about, and maybe it's not even so much about like others' expectations as my expectations for myself, and and maybe that's like something I have to get over too. Is like this fantasy version mm. of a person yes. who can just be like. I'm I'm right here and I feel this way and I have a solution like I'm not there yet <laughs> like I'm still working through this <laughs> And this is the million-dollar question, and again, like, I'm asking, a qu- like, this as if there's a neat answer, but how did you let go of that shame? Because I think for so many people that have a shameful secret, they're like, how do I, how do I move past that? It was talking about it. Um, I mean, I feel like the most important thing that writing the book did was get me to start talking, was get me to therapy. Mm-hmm. So at first, you know, I was only talking about this stuff in private with my therapist, but it was so hard for me even to— um, to say the word binge. Like when I wrote the first draft of the book, I rarely used the word binge. I used Mm. the word um, episode or I called it eat bad, which was what I used Mm. as a teenager. And um, that seems like crazy to me now. And I'd sort of justified (laughs) it because um, that was the language I used in my head at the time. But like even, you know, up to a year and a half ago, (laughs) like I still had too much shame to use the word binge to even say the word aloud. Uh, when when people talk, would talk about you know like binge watching or something something uh-huh. inside me oh. would like oh, wow. would wow. crumble yeah <laughs> even just from yeah. the word 
Well, I have to say, Susan, getting to the end of the book and reading the epilogue, I just thought, I really hope in 10 or 15 years or 20, she writes the sequel to this because I really want to know where it goes. Oh, well, thank you. I do, too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's, I mean, it's such a, it's an amazing, uh, it's about going to college. It's about moving to a new town. It's about swim team. I mean, there's, there's so much going on in your book. It is an extraordinary book. It's interesting on so many levels. It was, it's truly extraordinary. Um, But before you, you go, Susan, we have to ask you, do you, from the sublime to the, to the concrete, do you have a, uh, like a try this at home idea that you suggest to listeners for like something they could just do as part of their ordinary life to be happier? We ask this of everybody. Yeah. So because I'm talking about food, um, I will I will offer up something that has to do with that and and maybe is is most helpful to people who who feel that they struggle with food or, or don't eat intuitively, but maybe is something that that everybody can use. If if you're somebody who who struggles with food or finds they think too much about it, this might sound counterintuitive, but something that's been helpful to me is writing down what I've eaten, you know, in a morning or an afternoon or a day, and then how it made me feel. What I felt before mm. eating, what I felt during eating, what I felt after eating. And it's a helpful way to sort of recognize patterns. Um, and and it can function as a kind of diary. It can open out into so much more than kind of a log of, of what you ate. To track your moods and how how you're feeling at a certain time that maybe are invisible to you because you don't see how the pattern emerges. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Well, Susan, thank you so much. It's a fantastic, mesmerizing, page-turning book. It's been so great to talk to you. Oh, it was so much fun. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks, Susan. Coming up, we've got demerits and gold stars, but first, this break. Eating processed food for every meal isn't healthy for people or for dogs. We all know that, and kibble is subject to multiple rounds of high-heat processing, making an ultra-processed food. The farmer's dog is real, fresh, healthy food with whole meat and veggies gently cooked in human-grade kitchens to preserve their nutritional value. My dog, Barnaby, loves the farmer's dogs. When he sees me pulling one of those packets out, he comes running. It's personalized, vet-developed, and it has recipes for as little as $2 a day. Meals arrive in pre-portion, ready-to-serve packs, and they're conveniently delivered on whatever schedule works for me. Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash happier. That's 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash happier. If you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. What are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Well, now it is on homes.com. They've got everything you need to know about the listing itself, but even better. They've got comprehensive neighborhood guides and detailed reports about local schools. And their agent directory helps you see the agent's current listings and sales history. Homes.com collaboration tools make it easier than ever 
to share all this information with your family. It's a whole cul-de-sac of home shopping information all at your fingertips. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Okay, Gretchen, it is time for demerits and gold stars, and you're up this week with a demerit. Okay, this is a classic demerit. I mean, come on, Gretchen. I woke up in the middle of the night. I had a brilliant idea for my book that I'm working on, and I thought, but this idea is so obvious to me. It's so clearly in my mind that I do not need to bother to write it down because I will just remember it because it's such an important, gigantic idea. And then, of course, I woke up the next morning and I remembered having the thought <laughs> that I had this major insight, but I, had, I have no recollection of what it was. I know I need to write it down. It happens to me at least once a month. Do you keep a pad of paper by your bed? No, and I should. Yes. I should. You need to do that. I need to do that. Okay, so this demerit solution, I will do that today. Okay. Uh, so, Elizabeth, what's your gold star? Okay, I want to give a gold star to a podcast. It's called Wind of Change. First of all, I want to mention that Henry Malofsky, who was our original producer of Happier with Gretchen Rubin and yes. the adore, yes. is the producer of Wind of Change. It's from um, Pineapple Street Media. But it is a podcast about the notion that possibly the CIA had something to do with the Scorpion song, Wind of Change. And that it was sort of involved in helping end the Cold War. <laughs> so uh, I, it's a long story. Um, it goes in a lot of interesting places. It's a lot about sort of CIA tactics, which are fascinating. At one point in the podcast, Ozzy Osbourne breaks down the <laughs> bathroom door of a plane. Uh, a lot happens, um, and it's incredibly gripping. So I really recommend it to everyone. Wind of change. Okay. And the resources for this week. An easy way to make every day happier is to subscribe to my free Moment of Happiness newsletter, where five days a week I share a quotation related to happiness or human nature. And I recently updated the design so that you can screenshot it or copy it and share if you'd like to share the quote. You can sign up at GretchenRubin.com slash newsletter. And many of you are completists, we know, and we hear from people who are sorry that they are all caught up and now have to wait for each Wednesday to get a new episode. But remember, if you want more from me, not Elizabeth, but from me, you can listen to my audiobooks and you can get them wherever you listen to your audiobooks. I love audiobooks. <laughs> and that's it for this episode of Happier. Remember to try this at home. Create a catch-all. Let us know if you tried it and if it worked for you. Thank you to our terrific guest, Susan Burton. You can get her memoir, Empty, wherever you buy books. Thanks to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, and everyone at Cadence 13. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Instagram at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Liz Craft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. And if you like the show, if you have the time and the inclination, please rate us, please review us, please subscribe to us, please mention us to your friends. All these things really do help the show. We deeply appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Craft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and Upward. Listen, I want to listen to the podcast, but I have to know right now, why did Ozzy Osbourne break down an airplane bathroom door? 
Well, they were all of these um, metal bands traveled together to <laughs> Moscow for like a two-day music fest, and they all went on this big like 747 together and got completely wasted, and Ozzy Osbourne needed to go to the bathroom, and someone was in there. So he pounded <laughs> on the door until it came off. Not something you could get away with today. Wow. No. Wow. A, a plane full of heavy metal bands. Yes. Wow. From the Onward Project. I don't know about you, but I'm always looking for ways for my son to get involved and give back in our local community. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Student Visionaries of the Year, a campaign by Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, the largest nonprofit organization dedicated to creating a world without blood cancers. Student Visionaries of the Year is a seven-week philanthropic leadership development program for high school students. Participants form strong teams and fundraise in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor in their local community. This program is transformative. It not only helps students develop valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship, not to mention it looks great on college applications, but most importantly, is also a chance for them to engage in meaningful work within their their community and make a real impact on blood cancer patients and their families. You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org/students. That's lls.org/students. <laughs> 